Well, this morning we're going to be talking about this series, The Art of Neighboring. Today is the first day of the series, and I am really excited about it because not only did I enjoy this book, but intentionally neighboring is uh, a passion of mine. It's a value, a conviction. It's something that I feel God has called me to and put on my heart. And so I get excited to be able to share it with you. I get excited to be able to get other people excited about neighboring. And I think all of us here today, we can't think of neighboring without thinking about Mr. Rogers, right? The minute we hear neighbor or neighborhood, one of the first things that comes to our mind is Mr. Rogers. So today, I wore my, my zip-up hoodie. If you guys remember the beginning of his show, he always came out and he would sit down in his chair and he'd flip his penny loafer over and put on like a, a, a generic uh, tennis shoe and he'd zip up his hoodie halfway and it was off to his neighborhood of make-believe. Today, I think we can push out what it means to neighbor in a way that isn't make-believe, in a way that is truly an intentional practice, something that is an art. And so this morning, we begin our three-part Sunday morning series through the art of neighboring, and it's a series on building genuine relationships right outside our doors, right outside our doors, right outside of the church's doors. In the Bible, Jesus summed up all of the commands of the Old Testament and all the idea of what God intends into one command, one idea of love, the idea that we are called to love God with all that we are and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. This answer that Jesus gave of summing up the great, the, the, uh, the, the, all that God intends is known as the great commandment. So when we talk about neighboring, what we're really talking about is neighboring through the idea of the greatest command. Now, the first experience I had with neighboring with intentionality, it came to me this week as I was studying this series. I felt like I needed a break, and so Katie and I drove over to Strasburg, and my first apartments were in Strasburg and the area around it, and I loved that little town. And so what, every day as a bachelor, uh, when I wasn't on tour, I decided I wanted to eat at Pizza City. Have you guys ever been to Pizza City in Strasburg? Pizza City is hands down the best cheeseburger sub you've ever had. And so back then I used to eat two of those every day for lunch. And uh, I don't think I can do it anymore. But they have a special way of putting pepper on the lettuce that just, oh, it just makes my mouth water. And so uh, I was in the mood for this. And so we, we decided to drive over there. And I used to know the old owner very well. His name was Sam. He was an older Italian guy that has since passed. And I watched his son, who is now running the business, take my order and, and uh, interact with customers. And I realized something, that his son had learned to neighbor like his dad. He had learned to, to remember things about the neighbors. He, he asked someone how their vacation was. When, he, when I came in, he held the door for us. He had learned to intentionally look out for his neighborhood. And this is where I first discovered my love for the neighborhood, except Mr. Rogers. It was when I was living in Strasbourg and I was able to walk to each business and everyone just knew each other. And it was a great thing. It was the kind of place where if you forgot your wallet, you give him a handshake and just pay him two tomorrow. He knew I'd be back. And so it was this idea that neighborhood really is invested together. The Art of Neighboring series explores the implications of Jesus' words of the greatest commandment and asks the question, what if Jesus meant that we should actually love our neighbors, 
our actual neighbors. What if Jesus really meant that? The call to love our neighbor is written into the mission statement of so many churches. It's on t-shirts. It's on bumper stickers. We sing about it in worship songs. It's confessed by all of us as followers of Jesus. Love your neighbor has become a slogan that has appeared everywhere, but we have failed to live out with great intention. I think if we're honest with ourselves and with each other, we all agree that we have not lived this great commandment out with great intention, with great responsibility. Poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow shared his love and his belief for a healthy neighborhood in many of his poems. In one of them, he says, I have a great affection, I have an affection for a great city. I feel safe in the neighborhood of man, and I enjoy the sweet security of the streets. Think about what he's saying here. We tend, as we live in suburbia and as we, as we live in rural areas, look at places with an urban city, we tend not to think of them as security, right? We tend to look at neighborhoods and as, uh, as cities and towns as a place where crime manifests and that's where the people get murdered and, and that is not a clean place. But here, poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, a really high up kind of guy, said that he has a great affection He feels safe in the neighborhood of man and enjoys the security of the secrets, the security of the streets. We must start asking ourselves then, what has changed? What is different between that kind of neighborhood and the kind of neighborhood that we live in now? One of those things is we as followers of Jesus have not taken the greatest command intentionally. We have not lived it out in a way that actually solves problems. See, if we would live out what it means to neighbor through the intentional art of neighboring, if we'd practice that, if we practice the greatest command, maybe all those problems we see under our noses, uh, houses that is uh, falling down and crime and, and, you know, families that seem broken, drug problems, if we lived out the greatest command, maybe those problems we see under our noses we could begin to address and neighborhood would feel safe, streets would feel like security. So we look forward to you joining us for this series, The Art of Neighboring. We would invite you to read the book, The Art of Neighboring. It will be available in the church library. If you visit Ollie's, you can get it for $4.99. It is also available on just about anywhere you want to. If you don't enjoy reading books, you can download it for like $3.99 at Audible, and they will read it to you. And uh, it's kind of the replacement to the book on tape. You know, you put it in, drive around, well... You can now download an app to do that as well. So we look forward to you joining us in this series. We invite you to invite neighbors, but also check out this book and read it. As we begin this journey this morning, as we begin to explore what it means to practice the art of neighboring, we must confess something in our journey. We must, choose, we must realize that we have to choose a lifestyle of conversation and community over busyness and acclimation. So if you have a bulletin when you came in, uh, you'll see there are some blanks, so you can fill them out and take some notes and follow along and kind of reflect on them later, because I don't expect you to catch everything today. Neighboring's been uh, something I've been journeying on for a lifetime, and I hope you guys are as well. But the journey begins when we choose a lifestyle of conversation and community over busyness. It's a confession that we need to realize. We will never practice what it means to live out the great commandments. We will never practice the art of neighboring till we realize that it's soaked 
in conversation and community as a priority over everything else in our life. If you have your Bibles with me, I invite you to open up to Matthew 22, 34 through 40. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you. It'll also be on the screen. In the book of the Art of Neighboring, before he, he, he shares his feelings on, on this next passage, he tells about a time in Denver when he was pastoring. And uh, Jay Pathak is, is his pastor of the Mile High Vineyard in Denver. And he, he just throws the best event that he can think of. I mean, he gets this big band, and he puts radio ads out there. He markets it as much as he could do. And the day of the concert comes. He's excited. He thinks this is going to be the greatest revival that's ever happened. And about 50 people show up, and they were expecting several thousand. So he gets on his phone, and he's calling people, and he's saying, you're coming, right? You're going to bring your friends, right? You're going to bring your neighbors, right? Because this event was supposed to be that Holy Spirit moment, that moment where, hey, if we invite the right people into our church and if we put the right program on, it's going to be great. God's going to move. Our neighborhood is going to become Christians. Altogether, they had about 150 people show up once they called their neighbors, invited everyone. They were expecting thousands. Originally, it was just 50. They got up to 150, but it was still not the thousands that they were waiting for. Afterwards, Jay's a bit depressed, the author of this book. And he decides that he's going to go to a, he calls it the corner dive. And uh, he decides that he's going to go in there. And he's just going to talk with the other promoters and figure out what did they do wrong? Why did God not bless this event? Well, what he finds when he goes in there is that this new restaurant and and bar, whatever it is, uh, they have a crowd in there. Hundreds of people are gathered in this building and so he looks at the waitress and he says, what are you guys doing? Why do you have all these people? We, we put radio ads out, blah, blah, blah. And, we you know, we got 150 people. And here you have 300 people for like, you know, 80s karaoke night or whatever it was. And she just says, I don't know. It happens here every Thursday. We have a very dedicated crowd. These same people come back every Thursday. We think neighboring means how do we get people in the church. And here Jay, the author of this book, realized it meant how do I get to the places where God is already gathering people? Instead of how do I gather them in my church, why wasn't I on this Thursday night going to 80s karaoke if it meant that I get to rub shoulders with my neighbors? So Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, The Pharisees then got together, right? Because they think they're a little better than the Sadducees. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is where Matthew's story ends. He just, he recounts this and he just, he just stops his part of the story here. Why? Because I think, you know, the Sadducees thought they were going to outsmart Jesus. Jesus shuts them up. And then we see the Pharisees are kind of like, all right, round two, you haven't dealt with Rocky yet. I'm coming in now. And so the Pharisees come in and they think they're going to silence Jesus. And what happens is, 
the story just ends after Jesus' answer, right? Because the Pharisees realized they too were shot down. This is the core of the Old, what we call the Old Testament. It is found through Leviticus and other places. This is what God has intended from the beginning. This was always the DNA of the kingdom of God. So the Pharisees kind of are just jaw-dropped, right? And they don't know what to do with what Jesus said. But Mark, Mark tells a little bit more to the story. Mark says that there's one guy in the group that that wasn't a good enough answer for him. He's going to push back. He seems to be this lawyer type of guy that likes to argue. So I'm going to read now, picking up at that part in Mark's story, which you can find in Mark 12, 32 through 34. Mark 12, 32 through 34. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, and with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than any burnt offering and sacrifices. So the man is fighting back. He says, good, good words, Jesus, good words. I mean, uh, you're right. That is right. Did you pick up on what he said, though? He said, loving God and loving your neighbor is more important to the DNA of the kingdom of God than anything else you can do. The man acknowledges before Jesus that the most important thing, above anything we can do for God or that we think we are for God or that we do here on Sunday mornings, the most important thing to following Jesus, to following the DNA of the kingdom is that we need to love God and love our neighbors. The man acknowledges that. It is integral to the mission and the, and the message of Jesus. So when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then on, no one asked him any more questions. No one dared to ask him any more questions. This is kind of one of those scenes where we picture Jesus doing what's called a mic drop. Right? Have you guys heard of that? So it's kind of like when someone's on stage and you make a really good point. They, in music, you kind of just drop the mic and walk off the stage and let it land at that. So no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus mic drops here. Jesus said to this man, you're right. You're close. You are so close to the kingdom of God. Loving God and loving your neighbor is more important than anything else. The thing that we try to probably avoid or justify away the most, we find as an integral part of who we are as followers of Jesus. So then we have to ask ourselves this question. If that is so integral to who we are, what happens if we don't do it? What happens when followers of Jesus do not take the great commandment, the greatest commandment, literally. I, in the book, would suggest that there are three things that happen. We become a people that are isolated. We become a people that are fearful. And we have a people, become a people that misunderstand each other. When my grandmother was passing away, we cared for her. And we, we lived with her. We were able to, to be with her in her last days. She had become a person that made sure every window was locked at night and asked that the doors were locked. It wasn't the grandma I knew growing up. The grandma I knew growing up in her house, she lived along Harrisburg Pike, and every day strangers would walk up and knock on the door. Can I borrow your phone? You know, my car broke down. Hey, do you know, do you have an apartment for rent? Can we buy some of the fruit and vegetables out of your, your stand? Her whole life, as I can recall, her front door was always unlocked, and she always let people in. But 
she had gotten to a place where she was not interacting as much with community, and she became isolated. Do you guys know people like this, that the less they interact with their neighbors in their neighborhood, they actually become more and more isolated? Or maybe we have a, a hermit in our, our neighborhood that kind of looks like this kind of guy. We had a hermit in our neighborhood. We used to like to throw stones on his metal porch, right? And he was fearful and came out with his gun and yelled. I never did that, Mom, if you're listening. So um, these are the three things that happen. Isolation. We will live lonely lives. It's far too easy to leave our house every morning with our head down. We grind it out work. We come back home. We hurry inside to rest. We live more on social media with each other than the actual people around us. So in exchange, not only do we not get to know the people around us, but they don't get to know us. Fear. We will become a people that are weary of our neighbors, scared of them, and they will become scared of us. We are scared of the city because we actually don't interact there. So it seems scary. It seems foreign to us. But for somebody that's lived a lot of my life there, this city is actually very safe. It doesn't scare me at all, even with the current climate, uh, climate of, uh, of uh, crime that is happening there. Whatever is unknown is always scary to us. So when we don't know our neighbors and they don't know us, we have no choice but to imagine the worst. We judge them out of fear because we don't know them. Misunderstanding. When we don't know our neighbors, it's easy to judge and get the wrong idea about them. Their house. Their house is pretty run down. I, I mean, don't they ever change the shingles? I mean, why don't they weed the gardens? People probably say that about my house. You don't know what I say about their house. Right? So... We look at people and we judge them. We, we understand them based on what we see. Well, their red minivan blows a big pile of blue smoke every time they get by that. Don't they care about that? We may not know what's really affecting them. Maybe their mom's in a hospital with cancer. Maybe he's been laid off from work for, for weeks. When we don't take the greatest commandment literally, we fall subject to isolation, to fear, and the misunderstanding. It is through the greatest command that Jesus is actually, he's actually inviting us to love in the same way that he loves. He is saying the greatest thing you can do is to love God and love your neighbor because that is what he showed, love for his neighbor and intimacy with his father. Matt, uh, as we continue looking at the teaching on the greatest commandment, I invite you to turn with me to Mark 12, 32 to 34. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said. Is that on the screen? Oh, I'm sorry. Luke 10. Sorry, we had some computer problems when we were printing this today, but my computer reprinted my other slide. Sorry. Luke 10, 29 through 37, if you can join that with me. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Same answer that we see again. 
You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. That's a concept right there. Let's just pause that I would ask you to push out this week. What does that mean? Do this and you will live. Continuing. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, but who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The pastor happened to be going down the same road. Allow me grace for this example here. A pastor happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he quickly passed on the other side. So then, too, a Mennonite, when he came to the place, he saw him and passed him by the other side. But a Muslim, as he traveled, came where the man was and where he saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. And he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you have. Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus tells the story of the Great Samaritan to illustrate what it means to intentionally practice the art of neighboring. But I put a twist on it because that was a shock, right? The Mennonite part was funny. We can laugh at that. But when I put Muslim in there, I didn't hear laugh. Do you know why? Because we are a people that are isolated and fearful and misunderstanding of them as well. We as Christians don't tend to interact with the Muslim people. In the same way, a Samaritan and a Levite wouldn't have been hanging out either. In the same way that it would be a shock to think about a Muslim caring for a Christian, it was for these early followers to hear that that guy helped that guy, or when the guy came to, that's the guy that helped me. These two despised each other. They fought about their roots, their DNA, their heritage, their right living. Who was truly a follower of Jesus? They were enemies of theological understanding. Jesus tells the, great, the story of the Great Samaritan to illustrate what it means to intentionally practice the art of neighboring. And part of that, part of practicing the art of neighboring means we need to overlook our differences. Practicing the art of neighboring means we need to overlook our differences. What we see happening here is the two guys that were most like the guy beat up on the road, ignored him. It'd be like you and I laying on the side of the road and other Mennonites looking by us or other, other Christians who we know are close in mindset to us just ignored us. They were busy. They had somewhere to be. Regardless of our relation to them, they just overlooked him. Practicing the art of neighbor means we need to overlook our differences. It also means that we need to allow for interruptions in your life. Allowing for interruptions in your life is essential to the art of neighboring. Both of the guys that passed were really important people. 
They were really, really busy people. And they had places to be because that's what God wanted them to be, really busy people. They wanted them to get from point A to point B to make sure the task that God gave them was finished. I'm sure each one of them had somewhere to go and somewhere to be, just as everyone does that we walk by. However, in living out the greatest commandment, the Samaritan became flexible. He was probably one of the hardest parts. This is probably one of the hardest parts for us as Americans to grasp, especially Americans in the Northeast who are dictated, defined, and run by our schedules. At the end of the end of the day, we must be willing and flexible to schedule time with a neighbor. We must be willing to be impromptu with a neighbor. I am more and more convinced that we aren't a busy people or a scheduled people. We are a people with misappropriated um, priorities. We are people that are ruled by different priorities. So when we tell somebody or we tell the church we are too busy for that, what we are really saying is, sorry, my priorities are different. What we have seen over time is that some people made things priorities in the church that weren't. And so now church has not become a priority. But integral to the kingdom of God, the priority of the kingdom of God is the fact that we must learn to love God and love our neighbors. That is a priority. And when we are too busy to do that or too busy to do that together as a church, then what has really happened is we are saying, sorry, that doesn't take priority in my life. Sorry, Jesus, I am too busy for that priority. I'd rather do the other priorities you gave me. But this is the first priority Jesus gave us. So how well do we know our neighbors? Over the next few weeks, I'm asking you to challenge yourself. Draw a tic-tac-toe board on your paper. If you have a pen, find some blank piece of paper and draw a tic-tac-toe board. I don't care if your neighborhood is made up of rural fields, cookie-cutter retirement homes, planned communities like I live in, or an urban center. God doesn't differentiate what it means to neighbor in each context, and neither will we. Using the tic-tac-toe chart, look at this next image. Draw an A, B, and C in the next one, each one of those. An A, a B, and a C. This week, think about this. For A, and the eight houses that are around you, Write the name of every neighbor that lives there, okay? Well, that's uh, Sam and his wife's Jen, and they have kids, uh, Cletus and Clyde and um, Karen. And so try to name every neighbor in each one of those eight houses. Let's say something relevant about them. So, uh, you know, not things that you just don't get from glimpses, so not drives a red minivan, but... You know, I, I know he's a lawyer, or he's originally from Ethiopia. She's a stay-at-home mom. Write some relevant information about them that you already know. And then C, write some in-depth information, something that you would only know by actually interacting with him, by living out the greatest command. Well, okay, okay, I know. He wants to graduate college and be a stockbroker in New York City. Write something detailed that you know about them. What are their career plans? What are their fears? feelings on God, their biggest struggles, their biggest fears. Anybody think they can do that for all eight of their neighbors already? 
The ironic part is that through this practice the book teaches, 10% of people that they taught this idea to knew the name of all eight neighbors. So 10 out of 100, right? 10% know the names of all eight neighbors. 3% can fill out relevant information for all eight of their neighbors. And I wrote 1%, but it's actually less than 1%, they said, can fill out the in-depth information for each of their neighbors. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we don't know our neighbors the way we know the back of our hands or the way we know ourselves, are we living out the greatest command? We need to go from stranger to acquaintance to relationship. See, we don't know those things because we have neighbors who are faceless and nameless to us. And sadly, we've become okay with that. Sadly, I have become okay with that. Sadly, you have become okay with that. Sadly, we as the church have been okay with people coming on Sunday mornings and leaving here faceless and nameless. We need to go intentionally on a journey from stranger to acquaintance to relationship. And with relationship, it's messy and scary, but it's the only place that we can truly live out the greatest command. Sometimes we get caught up in thinking that everyone is my neighbor, and we either defeat our journey before we start, or we justify what it means to live out the greatest commands, and we justify it away. The fact is, when we try to aim for everything, we hit nothing. So start with a simple task of asking, who is my neighbor? In a great Samaritan story, the guy on the side of the road, those you would like to think of as neighbors were not his neighbors. Those of similar faith and worldview were not helpful. They left him nameless and faceless. The man who did good in the Samaritan story, who asked about the Samaritan story, wanted to find a loophole. Remember he said he tried to justify himself with who his neighbor really was. He wanted to say, uh, yeah, but who is my neighbor? I mean, isn't everyone my neighbor? Jesus, through the great Samaritan story, said the man who was next to you, even though he was different, the man who was very there, that was there right next to you on the road, that is your neighbor, the, the literal person next to you. So when we try to, how often do we try to find a loophole in what Jesus said is the most important thing for us to live out? Loving our neighbor isn't giving offering and knowing that our offerings help somebody in the neighborhood. It isn't paying our taxes knowing that it helps people who can't afford things. It isn't uh, doing food giveaways, right? These are the ways we've justified away what it means to love our neighbor. These things are not bad. These things are the responsibility of the church, but they are not living out the greatest commandment. They are not getting messy in relationship with the person that is next to you on the side of the road. We define our neighbors in the broadest terms. We think of them as those who are life, we help throughout life generically, rather than those opposite of us that we pass on the street in our neighborhood. Sadly, sadly, we have not lived out the greatest commandment. In Acts 17.26, Jesus I mean, uh, the the early church is is modeling Jesus' idea of the greatest command. And they come to a realization. Listen to this quick passage. From one man he made every nation of men, 
that they would inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. We are called to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves because that is how God intended the kingdom to work. The early church came to the realization that they were in that place, in that time, with reason. They were in that location with reason. They weren't going a better school district over there. I'm going to move there. They realized where they were was with intention. They realized that God did this so men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him through neighboring, through realizing neighboring matters. We must honor the reality that God may have placed us in our specific neighborhoods for a reason. We must honor that. We must honor the reality that the reason we live where we live is not because of the school district, because the kingdom of God wants to break through in that moment, and he wants to know your neighbor. In realizing that, like the early church, we must also act on the realization that God may have placed East Petersburg Mennonite Church in this neighborhood for a reason. It's great if you want to mirror what it means to love God and love neighbor in your neighborhood, but it does not excuse you from taking away from the mission of the church. Does anyone know how the first building got built in the 1700s that we met in? I've been doing some research on the history of East Petersburg Mennonite Church. As you know, it met on Lemon and State Streets where the Church of the Brethren was and then Real Life Church of God. When that land was given to us as a people. It was given, it said, for the glory of the kingdom and can be used by any Christian faith for the glory of the kingdom. In it, he said, there's a building built on it that was built for religious activities. Uh, you will meet there as it, when it's finished and you can also use it for a school. When that happened, neighbors, Christian, other religions, everybody came together in East Petersburg back then it was just called Petersburg, came together and carried a piece of log and built this early schoolhouse's union building, this this cabin-like building on Lemony State Street. Neighborhood was woven into who we were. It wasn't just us building our own building. People were so excited about the church and about the school and the fact that we were going to be there that the neighborhood picked up logs and dragged them from across town. It wasn't so close together back then. Everything was kind of spread out. Drug them and built the building. We have had reason for being in this neighborhood since that day. Since the day that the neighborhood came together and, and helped define who we are. We have been placed here as a church in this neighborhood for a reason. And we must realize that. We must work together for the kingdom of God in this neighborhood because that is what God wanted from this church from day one. If we do not take the greatest commandment as a literal call, then we turn it into nothing but a great metaphor. And through dedicated lip service, we believe Jesus loves our neighbor, and we believe the kingdom of God wants to encounter them. However, we have often failed at tangibly and intentionally living that out to them. 
through dedicated lip service. We believe it. We fail to live it out. We often talk about the church and how we can respond to God's love, to refugees, to victims of conflict, to racism, sex offender victims, and more. Yet our church is made up of cradle believers who have never learned to walk out what it means to love our neighbor. We want to solve the world's problem. Our denomination wants to solve the world's problem. Every church in its neighborhood wants to solve the world's problems. We see things on TV and it causes our hearts to hurt. And we want to respond to it with the love of God. Yet we have not even walked out what it means to follow God and to love God in our context. And we are trying to fix the world of some bigger problems. We often talk about how the church can respond with God's love. And it begins with loving God and loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. As we close, we're going to close with a moment of confession before the Lord as the worship band plays. As they come up and, and lead us in this song, they're going to lead us in the song of Open the Eyes of Your Heart. I encourage you to stand. I encourage you to open your hearts to what Jesus may be saying to you in your context. I begin to ask that you explore what is it that he wants you to uh, live out to your neighbors. And as we hit the benediction, we are going to hit a moment where I think the Holy Spirit is going to want to do something this morning. And so as we engage in a song together, as you sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Let it be a reality that you're asking him to open the eyes of your heart to your neighborhood, to the greatest commandment, and not as this abstract metaphor, but a literal reality in which the kingdom needs us to live out so that God can actually move in power within our neighborhoods. Let this be a moment of confession because I have failed at doing this. I continue to fail at doing this in the same way that we all have. But we need to journey to be a community learning to live in love like Jesus by living out this DNA of the kingdom.